Let me begin this morning with a contrast. The Bible's New Testament ends with a revelation, whereas its Old Testament ends with a nightmare. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells his story. He sinned against God and he angered the enemy that God had raised up against him. The Babylonian army became God's tool of judgment. When the invaders breached the walls of Jerusalem, Zedekiah tried to escape, but he didn't get far. The king was captured near Jericho and chained in bronze fetters. His captors wanted to humiliate Zedekiah, their defeated foe. So in his presence, the Babylonians executed his sons before his very eyes. And with that horrific scene indelibly stamped in his mind, they then took a hot poker and they plucked out Zedekiah's eyes. So that the last lingering image carved into the Jewish king's psyche The last sight that he saw was the bloody slaughter of his own boys. This is the kind of trauma from which you never recover. Now, think of the Apostle John. He's an old man. He's doing hard time on a rock island. As the last living disciple, he's the only person left eligible to add to the sacred scripture. Thus, before he closes his eyes for the last time, God communicates to him a revelation. And it moves John emotionally and physically. He writes what he sees and then he sends it out to the churches. God intends for his revelation to be the last lingering image burned into the collective psyche of God's church. See, King Zedekiah never shook his nightmare, and God wants the church to never take its eyes off of John's revelation. Its purpose is to shape our souls forever. The Greek word translated revelation is the term apocalypse. In our culture, it's become synonymous for cataclysm, destruction, impending doom. But to the Greeks, it meant simply an unveiling or an uncovering. Imagine walking into an art gallery and a sculpture by a famous artist lies under a canvas. At the appropriate moment, the curator rips off the fabric, revealing the beauty and the genius of the sculptor's work. This is revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is alive and well, but we don't see his excellence, for it's hidden behind a heavy canvas that separates the spiritual realm from the tangible world. Yet in Revelation, John rips away the veil. He reveals to us Jesus in all of his splendor. I like how Paul Mello translates the opening words of verse 1. The official portrait of Jesus Christ. You know, when a United States president leaves office, a state-funded oil painting is always commissioned. The tradition began in 1796. Several artists tried to paint George Washington, but it was Gilbert Stuart who painted the classic portrait. And when it comes to Jesus' official portrait, God got it right the first try. He called on John to be the artist. 
Hey, before we're done, John will paint a whole array of provocative details. We'll talk about falling stars and beasts and hailstones and plagues and marks and the whore of Babylon, no less. And with it all, we can get sidetracked. It's important to remember the theme of this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ. Our, one author writes, the theme of the book isn't 666, it's holy, holy, holy. The point of Revelation is not just the unleashing of judgment, it's the unveiling of Jesus. This is what God wants to permanently burn into our psyches. John writes of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. In other words, here's what's next. Here's what's coming up on God's agenda. Understand what John had already seen. He was Jesus' cousin. He was Mary's nephew. Jesus and John grew up together. John was there when Jesus began his ministry. He saw him walk on water and multiply lunch and heal a blind man and supernaturally locate a school of fish. John writes in another place, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John witnessed the first revelation of Jesus, that the eternal Son of God, as God and with God before time began, took on flesh and blood. Jesus revealed the Almighty's humble side. He came to serve and save. And John was there when the Roman executioners nailed Jesus to a piece of wood. He was there three days later when news came that the grave was empty. For 40 days, John was there and spent time with the risen Christ. And John was there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus, the victorious Lord, ascended back to heaven into glory. Yes, John was there for it all. And John did exactly what he was told. He and his fellow disciples went out into all the world to tell people what they had seen and heard and touched and handled. But now John is alone. The other disciples are all dead. Jesus has been gone now for 60 years. And John wonders, what's next? What's next for him? What's next for Christianity? Jesus had come preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was there when Jesus launched his kingdom. But now it's running headlong into the kingdoms of man. Christians were being attacked by the empire of Rome. The emperor had already crucified Peter and beheaded Paul, and still others were on the chopping block. What's next for God's besieged kingdom? The apostle needs a new revelation, a fresh vision. John knew that Jesus was no longer a bloody corpse. His sacrificial work was finished now. He had risen and ascended. But what's next? The answer is this revelation. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Notice Jesus sent and signified this message. 
Signified means to express by signs. This word has led some Bible teachers to see this book as a message encoded with signs and symbols. When John received this prophecy, he was a prisoner of Rome. And trust me, the Romans weren't too fond of manifestos that predicted coming kings and kingdoms that threatened to usurp Roman rule. Thus, to avoid censorship, John's letter employed signs and symbols. You could call this book a cryptogram. It's a coded message. Its symbolism enabled it to slip past Roman security, yet it was still understood by Christian readers. And what better code to use than Old Testament symbols? This is the key to interpreting Revelation. It's to familiarize yourself with Hebrew idioms and imagery. Of this book's 404 verses, 70% are 278 verses, quote, Old Testament references. The Revelation has 360 Old Testament inferences. It's been said the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. This is especially true with Revelation. Verse 3 attaches a special promise to this book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Any attempt to read and obey this book will be met with a blessing from God. Isn't that exciting? Though parts of Revelation are tough to interpret, God will reward a sincere effort. He wants this book especially to be etched in our hearts. It's what's next. John continues in his introduction. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Here's the common New Testament greeting, grace and peace. But not only does it come now from John, not only is it John's way of greeting the churches, now the triune God also greets the churches through John with grace and peace. For the revelation is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Understand, our Father God doesn't just have lots of time. Friends, God dwells outside of time. He occupies the past and the present and the future all simultaneously. Our God is the one who sees the end from the beginning. Think of it, God was. He is the God of history. In fact, history is His story. But God is also the God who is. He is ever in the moment. Psalm 46 verse 1 calls God a very present help in trouble. God is always present. And God is also to come His presence, His power, His purpose fills up our future. A central theme of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. But God is always coming. To a troubled marriage, He comes. To a heartbroken teenager, He comes. To a depressed housewife, He comes. To an out-of-work dad, He comes. To a believer struggling with doubt, God comes. To the rebel on the run, God comes. This is God's favorite posture. He's coming. But John also brings greetings from the Holy Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And admittedly, this is difficult terminology. 
We know from the rest of Scripture there is only one Holy Spirit. He's an individual, not seven different spirits. This seems to be a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 verse 2 tells us how the Spirit empowered Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is also how the Holy Spirit works in us, His church. He's the Spirit who reveals Jesus. He supplies us wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And last but not least, the readers of Revelation are greeted from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In all that Jesus did and said, he represented his Father. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the truth teller. Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' human body was the first to undergo the metamorphosis. Paul describes resurrection. This corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus was first to escape decay. Now his resurrection is the hope of all his followers. Jesus is the truth teller. He's the grave robber, and he's the ultimate ruler. For John calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this was important to the believers in Asia. At the time, Christianity was an oppressed minority. Rome viewed the church as a public enemy. Yet the revelation received by John and passed on to the churches was so convincing that those who read it knew that it was only a matter of time before the rulers of this world bowed before King Jesus. He will ultimately reign. Jesus is the truth teller, he's the grave robber, he's the ultimate ruler, and he's also the soul lover and the sin washer. For John writes in verses 5 and 6, to him who loved us. He loved us then, friends, and he loves us so much now. So much so that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus didn't offer a proxy. It wasn't done through the blood of a lamb, it was his own blood. He paid for our forgiveness personally. And he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Jesus is the glory sharer and the priest maker. Our destiny is to rule with Jesus one day. He will end the long-running revolt of Satan. Once and for all, Jesus will strip the devil of his authority and then award it to you and me. And he'll also make us priests. There'll be a priestly cast in heaven. For all eternity, the followers of Jesus will enjoy unrivaled access and close proximity to our God. It's interesting, like the Holy Spirit, Jesus also has seven functions. He's the truth teller and the grave robber and the ultimate ruler and the soul lover and the sin washer and the glory sharer and the priest maker. And how should we respond to this? John shouts it out. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Praise Him, friends. Shout amen. It means I agree. John was moved by the truth of not just what Jesus did, but of who He is today. Let's be moved by this same truth. For one truth is certain. Jesus is not done moving. For John writes in verse 7, Behold, he is coming 
with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Jesus is coming back to this earth. Technically, there are two second comings of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus comes in the clouds for his church. The lost world won't know what happened when we disappear and we're caught up to meet with Jesus. But here he comes with clouds. And notice, every eye will see him. This is an in-your-face encounter. Jesus will return to settle scores and exact justice and judge evil. We'll talk more about this later, but Jesus comes in the clouds at the rapture. He'll surprise the world and take his church. But he comes with clouds on the final day. He'll touch down on the Mount of Olives to end man's rebellion and to establish his political kingdom. And notice the addendum to verse 7. It says, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. This refers to Zechariah 12, verse 10, and the Jews. It's a prophetic irony. In the end, the Jews will realize their mistake. They crucified their own Savior. They wounded their only healer. Well, since Jesus ascended to heaven, he's been sitting there at God's right hand. He's finished his work of salvation, and his spirit has been busy gathering his church But once the church is caught up to him, God's wrath will come down. A Christ-rejecting world will be punished. People in today's modern skeptical world, they mock at this idea. But in that day, they won't escape. The old Baptist preacher Vance Havner once wrote, Some of us get laughed at by the swivel chair experts in eschatology. But when God splits the skies and the stars fall and the moon turns to blood... And men cry for rocks and mountains to fall on them. It's going to be pretty hard for some of us to keep from saying, I told you so. Jesus came to earth the first time to pardon, but he's coming a second time to punish. The Lamb of God who was laid on the altar is also the lion who will roar. It's a jungle out there. Because of man's rebellion, the world we live in is full of dangerous predators. But Jesus is the king of the jungle. He'll return in all his superiority and his supremacy. And it'll be an I told you so kind of day. Today the world scoffs. If he's alive, where is he, they say. On that day, every eye will see him. Only then it'll be too late. This is why John writes, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They'll mourn, but they were warned. And they never took heed. For many people, history will have an unhappy ending. In fact, John sighs himself, verse 7, even so, amen. And here Jesus interjects, I am the Alpha and the Omega, The beginning and the end, says the Lord. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is in essence saying, I am the A to Z. He is the beginning, he is the end, and he's all that's in between. Then Jesus takes that title that was earlier attributed to the Father. He is the one who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is claiming to be God, equal to the Father. They have the same status. And then verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Around 90 AD, a second wave of persecution targeted the church. The emperor Domitian followed in the footsteps of Nero. John was arrested and he was sentenced to be boiled in a vat of hot oil. And yet God himself intervened. John miraculously survived the ordeal. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he banished John to Patmos. Patmos is an island in the, in, in, the, in the Aegean Sea. It's about 10 miles long by 6 miles wide. It's 15 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's a barren, rocky, desolate place. In the first century, it held a penal colony where Roman prisoners were sent to do hard labor. Patmos was the first century Alcatraz. Realize John is now 90 plus years old. He's frail and feeble and he's scarred over most of his body. Souvenirs he picked up from his brush with death in the boiling oil. Now he's pounding a hammer in the rock quarry. And John was not the only believer suffering under this Roman reign of terror. All across the empire, Christians were being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Surely it made John think. Remember to this point, all John had seen was the first revelation of Jesus. The infinite became an infant. God's son came to earth through the lowest door. Jesus was God, but he laid aside the perks of deity. Jesus came as a servant. He could have thrown his weight around. He could have intimidated us into compliance. Instead, Jesus overwhelmed us with his grace. His mercy and tenderness disarmed us and slipped past our defenses. Our hearts have been won by his love. And to bear our punishment, Jesus made himself defenseless. He laid his back open to take on our stripes. But John now has some stripes of his own. Ever seen a burn victim? Imagine John now covered with the scars, the scars of his burning. He's thankful Jesus has won his heart, but who's going to win this war he's fighting? John is in a fight. The battle is raging around him. Good and evil, God and Satan are slugging it out. It's a jungle out there. John believed in Jesus, but he needed more than a servant to model or even a savior to rely on. For John to endure his hardships, he and his friends needed the hope of a conquering king. John in the persecuted church needed a second revelation. The unveiling of an exalted, glorified Christ. They needed a savior who's also a heavyweight champ. Reminds me of the middle-aged woman with the incurable disease. She checked into the hospital thinking that her days were numbered. But that first night in the hospital, she had a vision from God. An angel told her that she'd live another 30 years. She was so excited. She thought, wow, you know, if I'm going to live for another three decades, 
I should do so in style. So while she was in the hospital, she had a facelift, some liposuction, a little tummy tuck, a couple other procedures. Well, after she left, she was crossing the street, and she got hit by a truck. She died. When she got to heaven, the lady saw the angel who had visited her. She said, you told me you'd live another 30 years. I'd live another 30 years. The angel replied, yeah, but I didn't recognize you. And I'm afraid this is most people's problem with Jesus. You know, they've so confused his first revelation, there's no way they would recognize the Lord today. Over the years, artists have painted some pathetic portraits of Jesus. They depict him as weak and frail. He glows in the dark. He wears pearly white robes and takes a sissified posture. He uses curlers in his hair. It looks suspiciously effeminate. It's tragic. We've mistaken the guy who got angry at the Jewish hierarchy, who actually made a whip with his own hands, overturned tables, and bounced crooked priests out of the temple as a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, the real Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. He was a man's man. He was a blue-collar guy. Jesus was no stranger to hard work. He pounded nails before the days of hand tools and power tools. Jesus was a carpenter who liked to fish. Yet if if Christians today have confused what Jesus was like when he lived among us, they have no clue as to what he's like today and how he'll appear when the world sees him again. This is why we need a second revelation. Jesus is still a man, but now a glorified man, an exalted king. He is the man all men were meant to be. Jesus' humility was only temporary. Now he's back on heaven's throne with the authority that he's won on earth. Realize the person we serve and follow no longer walks on water. That's kid stuff to him now. Today he rides on the clouds. He rules in heaven and commands an army and doles out justice as well as mercy. This is the revelation John received on Patmos and sent to the seven churches. What's next? A glorified Christ. John remembers the day this revelation came to him. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was Sunday. Already the early church was living in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. The Jews held services on the Sabbath, the last day of the week. But the Christians met on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose again. Sundays were sort of treated like a mini Easter. The first church preached the cross, but they didn't leave Jesus there. Jesus rose to reign. And after this resurrection, after this revelation, they all knew to live in light of the exalted Christ. John was in the spirit, he says. He was dialed in. He was logged on. He was worshiping and communing with God when he heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. At his first revelation, Jesus launched God's kingdom spiritually, but he'll also bring it to earth in all its glory 
He is the beginning and the end. And this shapes our duty as Christians. Yes, we're part of the spiritual kingdom that's still serving and seeking to save. And we're called to help in that process. But we'll endure persecution and we'll resist temptation only if we know what's next. For ultimately, all wrongs will be righted. Good will triumph. God's people will win in the end. The triumphant Christ is what's next. And this is the theme of John's revelation. And then Jesus said to John, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This isn't an exhaustive list of churches in the first century region of Asia. There were more than that, but Jesus chose these seven churches for a reason. And that's what we'll talk about next week. And here's where the plot thickens, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. John describes Jesus, but before we read of him, note where he's at. He's in the midst of the lampstands. Later we learn that these seven lampstands, or these seven branch menorahs, are symbols of the seven churches that he's just mentioned. In the Old Testament temple, the priest was in charge of lighting and tending to the menorah. And likewise, the church is the New Testament temple. And Jesus is our priest. Thus, he works among the churches to keep us filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. This keeps our light shining bright. But notice how this revelation relates to God's plan. This is what's next. Jesus hanging out in his church. This is why I'm always saying to you, if you love Jesus, you'll love his church. You'll want to be here. You'll want to be a part of his church. The church is where the action is. Where is Jesus working in the world today? He's hanging out in the lampstands in his church. He doesn't promise that you'll find him in the Rotary Club or at the Little League or in the PTA or at the Political Action Committee or wherever else you're involved in, Jesus prefers to work in and through his church. He told his disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The church is where the action is. John sees Jesus. He's still a man. Son of man speaks of his humility and his humanity. But John recognizes him as only like the Son of Man. His visage was different. The revelation he now sees doesn't stack up to the Jesus he heard and saw and his hands handled. This is the warrior and ruler, not just the servant and sacrifice. John is about to portray the king of the jungle. And he starts with what Jesus wears to work. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet. Commoners and peasants wore knee-length robes. Only a king's robe drugged the ground. Jesus is now king of kings. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. 
In other words, he's king and he's priest. The Old Testament priest wore a golden breastplate. As a priest, Jesus intercedes for his church. Understand a separation of church and state existed in ancient Israel. The king was never a priest and vice versa. But Jesus abolishes the separation clause. He rules on God's throne and he works in God's temple, his church. And then verse 14 describes him. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Years ago, I had an album cover that tried to replicate the portrait, this portrait of Jesus. And the result was rather grotesque. It was almost sacrilegious. They tried to literally replicate these descriptions. Don't try to envision this portrait literally. Remember, Revelation was encoded with Old Testament idioms and imagery. For starters, Jesus' hair isn't white. He doesn't sport a bleach job. It's certainly not gray hair. No, the whiteness speaks of his moral and spiritual purity. And his eyes aren't bloodshot. Like a flame of fire speaks of their searing scrutiny and their searchability. Hey, Jesus doesn't look past you as if you don't matter. Oh, he cares about you deeply. He doesn't look at you as if he's sizing you up to figure you out. No, he already knows you perfectly. And he doesn't look to you as if he needs anything from you. Jesus is sufficient in and of himself. But Jesus does look through you. His stare penetrates and it uncovers the real you. You can't hide your sin. You can't play the hypocrite under Jesus' gaze. And his brass feet doesn't mean he has a lead foot. Brass is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper is shiny, but it bends. Brass is a mixture of both strength and endurance. And when Jesus puts his foot down, he means it. It's emphatic. And the voice of Jesus is like the sound of many waters, literally a waterfall. I'll never forget visiting Niagara Falls and standing at the bottom. You can scream into the ear of the person next to you and it doesn't register. The, the water drowns out everything else. Jesus had spoken to John while on earth. In fact, for 60 years now, John had learned, he had trained himself to hear the still small voice of Jesus, the quiet whispers of his Holy Spirit. But now this is different. For here, the lion roars. Jesus' voice is like a waterfall. It drowns out all other voices. Today, we're surrounded by competing opinions. The media blares with talk shows and pundits, blogs and spin. But when Jesus speaks, he muffles all other influences. He gets our attention. And in his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars. Verse 20 explains it. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The lampstands are the churches. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. The stars are the angels. The Greek word translated angel means messenger. It could be that every church has a guardian angel. That's a nice thought, isn't it? I bet our guy works overtime keeping up with you guys. But the term angel could also speak of pastors. Not to say that your pastor is an angel. Not hardly. But pastors are the messengers of Jesus to his church. Either way, whether stars or angels or pastors, the point is, is they're both in the Lord's right hand. This means his hand speaks of authority, which means that any authority vested in the church comes from Jesus. All pastors are accountable to that right hand and should remember it. And what's up with Jesus' breath here? Verse 16 tells us, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And even people with just a little bit of Bible under their belt recognize this imagery. The two-edged sword is the scripture itself. It's sharp and incisive. It cuts coming and going. It opens us up and lays us bare and fillets our pride. Today, Jesus works powerfully through his word. And then finally, John describes Jesus' overall countenance. It was like the sun shining in its strength. Eyeballing the glorified Christ is like looking directly into the sun. His glory blinds us to every other interest. John writes, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. On earth, Jesus and John had hung out. They had been friendly. They'd gone fishing together. Now John sees Jesus and his knees wobble. He hits the deck. The glorified Christ takes his breath away. And John is speechless. You know, they say President Obama used to play basketball with his aides. And I'm sure they had a lot of fun. But trust me, nobody hacked the president, I guarantee you. If he was on a breakaway, you just let him have the basket. You didn't risk injuring the commander-in-chief. Even if he's your pal, you treat a president differently. A president differently. And the same is true with Jesus. At his first coming, we learned that Jesus wants to be our friend, our Savior, and he still does. But this second revelation reminds us that he's not just a friend. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not the guy upstairs. Jesus deserves and expects our respect. John collapsed at his feet and he worshiped him. We should too. But notice Jesus' reply to John. It's beautiful. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus comforts John. His clothes, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his mouth are different than at his first revelation. But the one thing that hasn't changed is Jesus' heart. 
And that's when he says, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. And if you're concerned about heaven and hell, if you're concerned about what happens to you after you die, Jesus is the go-to guy. Buddha, Muhammad, Oprah, they have nothing to say in this matter. Jesus alone has the keys to the afterlife, to the end of life. He alone decides when you die and where you go. John closes the chapter with a helpful outline of the remainder of the book of Revelation. The angel says to him, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The things which you have seen. What is that? That's chapter 1. That's what we've just studied this morning. It's the vision that John received of the risen, glorified Christ. The things which are. This is chapters 2 and 3. This is Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. John was living in the church age. And it has lasted now some 2,000 years. And then the rest of the book, the things which will take place after this, are chapters 4 through 22. For once the church is caught away, then sweeping judgments will pave the way for the ultimate triumph of King Jesus. What's next in God's plan? Jesus is next. Jesus in all his glory is next in God's plan. Jesus is the A to Z. He is the beginning and the end. Let this second revelation burn into your heart. Look to the glorified Christ and you'll find all that you need for victory today.